Good morning, everyone. I've had a bit of a cold this week, and so my voice is a little odd. Hopefully, I'll keep it throughout the sermon today. Uh, I got Kleenex, I got water, so I'm good to go. I'm also feeling a little stiff, so Josh is going to be happy about this because I'm probably not going to be moving too much, Josh. <laughs> we had a great day yesterday in Penyan. A group of us went and helped uh, clean up the parsonage there, and I'm actually not going to tell you a lot about it. I have some pictures and all that, but I'm going to save that for next week because I think uh, that actually is a great illustration of our text. And so I'm going to talk more about what happened yesterday to, uh, next week when we come back together. Well, we've done some changes this Advent season, and it seems like why not do more change, right? You can never have too much change, amen? No? <laughs> too much. All right. Well, hopefully this isn't too much because we're changing the service order today. Take a deep breath. Because sometimes in the unsettling and the changing, uh, the discomfort that comes with that, sometimes God can do interesting things in our lives. I didn't do this because of that idea. Um, I think that our sermon today is going to work well as a two-part sermon. And so I wanted to start with part one. But my prayer for you and for me is that in this kind of change in our order of worship, that maybe God will be speaking to us and we'll be open in a way maybe that we otherwise wouldn't be. So let's begin with a word of prayer. God, thank you. Thank you for these opportunities that we get to return to the family, to come back together, to, to listen, to reflect. Thank you for the young voices that are in this space. It's so good to hear their, their presence with us. I thank you for these moments that we have. Would you pour your Holy Spirit out in such a way that we would be able to walk away today knowing that we've met with you, that this has indeed been holy ground. We give this time to you. We give our hearts and minds to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I've got to pay attention to the clock. So our sermon's two parts. Part one, meeting John the Baptist. John might be like one of those relatives who are hard to describe to our friends. Do you have any relatives like that? Some might say they're a little eccentric or strange. But that's because he doesn't live the way that we would expect. He doesn't live the, the customary patterns of life. He challenges our sensibilities, John the Baptist does. Kids, you might want to listen to this description that I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 3 and how he's described, um, in part because in just a moment after I read, there are going to be some images that come up on the screen of ways that famous painters have painted John the Baptist. And I think it's interesting to see how they envisioned him. I'm wondering how our young people, or even our adults, if you're an artist, how you would draw or color or paint John the Baptist. Maybe you would like to share that with me this week, because guess who we're going to meet next week again? John the Baptist. But let's be introduced to this, this man from Matthew chapter 3. I'll be reading the first 12 verses. 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Half of Advent circles around this person, John the Baptist, so it seems like maybe we should pay attention to him. We're only three chapters into Matthew, but his biblical story doesn't actually start here. It starts in Luke chapter 1. That's where we get his birth narrative. And if you know the story of John at all, then you know that his parents were elderly, that their days of having a child were long since past. They never did have a child, in fact. And so when the angel shows up to tell Zechariah, John's father, that they are going to have a child, it's a great surprise. They're to give him the name John, which, if you remember, is not a family name. The text doesn't tell us why the name John exactly, but maybe it is a point to illustrate that this young child is set apart by God. There's something peculiar about him. He's called to a particular mission. It's probably around 30 years later that we find John in Matthew chapter 3. And by now he's all grown up. He lives in the wilderness. Now we hear this and we think trees, right? But if you read wilderness in the scriptures, you need to keep in mind desert. That's where John the Baptist grew up. And in Luke chapter 1 verse 80, it says that he spent his life in the desert, in the wilderness. And so maybe it was years, maybe it was decades, we don't know the exact time frame, but maybe most of his life was spent in the wilderness. In any case, when he does arrive from this desert living, we are given some odd information about him, aren't we? He eats what, look, kids? Did you hear what he eats? Locusts, grasshoppers. Can you imagine? It's an important fact to know this. We do have pictures coming up. Good. The Levitical law, the book of Leviticus, actually says that locusts are clean, therefore edible. So young people, you can start asking for grasshoppers at meals now. <laughs> the Bible says it's okay. I wonder if we'll have any takers. <laughs> 
Of course, it's not just locusts, it's also honey, but it, the text is clear, it's wild honey. So if you know anything about how honey's made, then you know wild honey's not the easiest thing to come by. There's a bit of a risk here. Anyway, here comes this wild man from the desert, eating very peculiar food and very much dressing the part. Did you hear that? The bits of details we get in Scripture sometimes are really interesting to me. And I'm not really sure I thought to myself that it's important. Oh, I, I want to know what John is wearing, but we're told what he's wearing. He's wearing camel fur, and he has a leather belt around his waist. Did you notice that there was no mention of a beautiful red cloth draping him, as some of our paintings have? <laughs> Somewhere that, that missed the text. These odd details are not just incidental, though. They echo back to 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, in the description of what Elijah wore. Elijah, you might recall, was a prophet who happened to live in the wilderness. And here comes this wild man wearing the clothes of Elijah. Not the literal clothes, mind you but dressed in the style of Elijah. And maybe some teenagers would like to dress in the style of Elijah. Bring back some of that camel fur, right? And he's preaching about the coming kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Could it be that John the Baptist is actually a prophet? Now, John, the gospel of John chapter 1, John is going to say, no, I'm not a prophet. He's always going to, to want to push anything away from identifying himself, he's going to push it to the one that's coming after him, Jesus. He doesn't want the focus on him. But we have to ask, is this man a prophet? Who is this John the Baptist? It's interesting to me that this week is the week of peace in the Advent cycle. I'm not sure how you see John the Baptist and what you know about him, but I don't see him as the most peaceful of biblical characters. Based on these paintings, we might even say his hair's a bit unruly, right? Repent, confess. This isn't always a message of peace. I've had on a number of occasions come across street preachers that yell these very words at the crowd, and I never walk away from that moment thinking that was peaceful. And if that isn't enough, John doubles down with his language to the Pharisees and Sadducees. These were the religious elite of the day. And he says to them, he calls them a brood of vipers. Do you think he whispered that to them? Or was that a full voice declaration? How do you hear John in this passage? Is he a whispering prophet coming from the wilderness, meek and mild? Or is there a kind of wildness to him? He's passionate, it seems. Definitely brave. But peace? How does peace fit in with John? The problem we have with the idea of peace is that it actually doesn't mean the same thing for each one of us. Peace might be viewed as the absence of conflict, for instance. I think scripture is clear that it is much more than that, but let's just start with this. But I think we can view the absence of conflict in two different ways. We could choose not to deal with the problem. Don't speak our words. Don't say anything to upset the other person. 
and prevent the conflict by absorbing it into ourselves. This is a kind of peacekeeping, I think. Do everything you can to avoid the conflict, even if it means we internally are very much conflicted. Do you hear what I'm saying? But the other approach might mean that we need to speak the words we feel, declare the problem out loud, name our hurt. Yes, how this done matters. It really matters. But if the previous example is about covering over or hiding the problem, then this approach is about exposing it, naming it, uncovering the hurt. I think this is the path of peacemaking. John offers us not so much a window into peace as we typically think about it. He doesn't seem like a peaceful biblical character, really. But I think he is a model for us of what it means to be a peacemaker. He actually, I think, gives us two ways to consider this today, and so I'm going to start with the more difficult one. The one that maybe we're not going to experience all that often in our lives, but we need to be aware of it because there may be a time and a place where God calls us to this kind of peacemaking. The peacemaking that is a way of speaking truth to power. It is one thing for John to call for repentance from the crowd. It's significant in and of itself, but it is a whole other story to think that he calls the religious leaders of his day to repentance. No doubt the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted to know what John was up to. Maybe they were annoyed with him. They'd been hearing things, grumblings about what was going on in the, in the Jordan Valley. Maybe they were jealous of him, that he was drawing all these people to himself. Who knows? We don't exactly know what they were thinking when they arrived on the scene in Matthew chapter 3. But what we do know is that when they do arrive, they are not ready to repent. And we know this because of the way that John responds to them at their arrival. I want you to think of how different this passage might have been if John had considered that it's it's important to submit to the powers of the day. He, he certainly could have deferred to the religious leaders. Oh, here come the important ones from the temple, the Sadducees. Oh, here come the important ones that take seriously the laws, the Pharisees. These are the important ones in the, re, in the religious circles. I should defer to them. I could applaud them for being the holy men that they are. Or I, I could applaud them and give them a lot of platitudes about how, how awesome that they are. But that's not what John did at all, did he? In fact, if he had done that, if he had taken that path, it might have been good for his career path. It doesn't hurt to praise the powerful among you, does it? It opens up new doors for you. But John isn't about taking the safest path. If you were reading this for the first time, or if you've never heard of John the Baptist, and this is all new, and and your first exposure to him was my reading of Matthew chapter 3, you might be asking yourself, what in the world does John have against these religious leaders? But the rest of the Gospels are going to outline that John actually did understand them and know them. And let's not forget that Jesus is going to use this brood of vipers language against the Pharisees later on in this same Gospel. Matthew 23. John's words are not meant to be understood as being mean-spirited or cruel. 
Do you understand that? They are harsh, though. There's no denying that. But sometimes truth needs to be harsh, to be heard. Let me be careful here. Sometimes. Not every time. Sometimes. And we probably should pay very particular attention to who John is being harsh with here. The religious leaders that had the power. We sometimes will need to speak truth in harsh ways, especially when dealing with people of power. Power has this terrible tendency in humans of insulating us from the actual truth. There are so, so many examples we could speak of today, historically, but also that are happening right now. A very powerful men shaping and creating their own realities around their own truths. And this is not new. We need to see this. This is not new. The reality that these religious leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, had crafted for themselves is that they were good with God. And they were good with God because they were the leaders of God's people, the Israelites. Their father was Abraham, after all. They don't need to repent. Why would they need to repent? There was a belief in John's day in first century Palestine that in fact the Messiah was going to come and that the role of the Messiah was to destroy the Gentiles. They were the oppressors. And that the Jewish people, God's people, were going to enter into their reward as a result of the Messiah coming. And that this was automatically going to happen because they were descendants of Abraham. But John sees no truth in this at all. Did you hear that? Because the truth he preaches, indeed is commissioned to preach by God, is that even the religious leaders ought to produce fruit keeping with repentance. Did you hear that? In other words, and maybe this is the point that will land for most of us in here, there is no entering the kingdom of God on the coattails of another person. It doesn't matter what family you were born into. It doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter how many Christians might have gone before you. And we could even say it the opposite. Maybe you don't have a single Christian in your family, but it doesn't matter. Because all that matters is each and every one of us are held account before God. We each need to repent. Even pastors need to repent. Even presidents need to repent. Even billionaire CEOs need to repent. That's bold preaching, isn't it? <laughs> it's easy for me to call out some of those people when they're not in this space. John did it to their faces. <laughs> bold preaching. Speaking truth to power is not something we should do lightly or flippantly, of course. We have to remember that John spent 30 years, roughly, in the wilderness preparing for this moment. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He had a call. If we ever want to be someone who can be so brave, then we have to understand that this can only be done with a very deep and living relationship with God. But every single one of us in here should be open to the idea 
that at some point in our lives, if we are in a living relationship with Jesus Christ, if we have the Holy Spirit abiding in us, that at some point you and I might find that we need to speak truth to power. And if we do that, then we have become peacemakers. But that's not the only way peacemaking happens in this passage, because we still have to think about the crowd. But this is more subtle, I think, and it might be helpful if I illustrate this from another passage of Scripture. In John chapter 4, we find Jesus has to go through Samaria. That in and of itself is an interesting, interesting statement. Because in that day, no self-respecting Jewish man, Jew of any kind, really wanted to go through Samaria. They wanted to go around it, actually. And yet the text tells us that he had to go through Samaria to meet a woman at a well. Jesus is alone at this point. He sends the disciples off to get food. He's sitting at the well. He meets the woman. And he speaks to her, and he asks her for a drink of water. She's totally surprised by this, you might recall. She's, she's totally caught off guard by this. Why are you speaking to me? Jewish men should not be speaking to women when they're by themselves in public. That's just not kosher. His disciples are going to be wondering about this when they see this happening. And certainly a Jewish man should not be asking a Samaritan to drink out of her vessel. That's not something you do because Samaritans were considered unclean. In the course of their conversation, Jesus offers her living water. There's a little bit of a play on the, on the Greek language here. And, and so there's this, this translation between running water and living water. And so it seems like what she hears is not living water, but running water. This is a good offer for her because she doesn't want to gather water in the middle of the day from the well anymore. And why would you? In fact, we should ask ourselves, why is this woman at the well at 12 in the afternoon? That is not a good time to draw water in the heat of the day. It seems that she has a reason to avoid the crowds. Why? Jesus uncovers the mystery. Go get your husband and come back, he says to her, which is just a really random request. She has no husband, she tells him. It's kind of awkward. But apparently not for Jesus because he says, that's right. You've had five husbands and you're living with one that's not your husband now. And at this point, we might be thinking to ourselves, wow, this is really heartless. This is kind of brutal. But I assure you, it's not. Because in this uncovering of the secret shame of this woman, something truly remarkable happens. The woman finds freedom to speak the truth. She runs back into the, into the town and declares the truth about herself and Jesus. Read the text. She says to the people that she's been hiding from, he told me everything about my life, which suggests to me that this conversation that we're given a little snapshot, a little window into, probably was much longer. And that somehow Jesus, in the course of this conversation at this well, was plumbing the depths of this woman's life. And she didn't see this as oppressive or shameful or a problem at all. In fact, she is so energized by this, so moved by this, so empowered by this, she runs into the town and all those people that she was hiding from, she now says the truth about herself 
and the truth about Jesus. And I don't know if you're getting it, but this is really, really remarkable. Because if you're following along in John's gospel, this makes her the first evangelist of Jesus Christ. Now think about that. She's a woman, and she's a Samaritan. This is how subversive our scripture is. This is the first person that goes and says, you need to hear about the Christ, the Messiah. And the text tells us it is because of her testimony that many in her community came to Jesus. Somehow speaking, Jesus speaking truth into her life helped free her from the guilt and shame of her life. And friends, that's the power of peacemaking. It's also the power of repentance. Because repentance is about making peace with God. John's calling people to repentance is about freeing them from the chains of sin and shame so that the people could experience the freedom that God has for them. Crooked lives being turned straight, if we want to borrow some of that language from Isaiah. This is not beating people over the head with guilt. This is just naming a truth. We need God. And it is only as we accept this truth that we actually experience true peace. Peace with God means that we can have peace with each other. The crowds knew this peace, thanks to John's peacemaking preaching. The Sadducees and the Pharisees refused this peace. The woman at the well experienced this peace thanks to Jesus' peacemaking. The question for us today is what about us? Will we accept the truth of our need for repentance so that we too can experience the peace of God? So that we can become peacemakers? Because you might recall that in just a few chapters, Jesus is going to say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. Our praise team's going to come, and we're going to sing, have a reflective reading together. But I wonder if you'd pray with me, God. I think of John the Baptist, and he is an eccentric character, so different than us in a lot of ways. But maybe he, his life is speaking to us today. Maybe there's something about the way that he ministered in first century Palestine that we need to think about in the 21st century in the U.S. Could you be calling each of us to be peacemakers? Peacemakers in our families. Peacemakers at work. Peacemakers in our community and in the digital sphere. Oh God, would you be stirring in us? Would you be exploring the depths of our hearts right now? We invite you in. If we're ever going to be the peacemakers that you want us to be, we have to first be at peace with you. 
Would you help us to experience that right now? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.